Today we begin a new series entitled Joyful Souls, a corollary to the series we just recently completed, Hurtful Souls. And it is this corollary, Joyful Souls, that makes life worth living. If salvation's benefits were all in the future, it would be very difficult indeed for anyone to relish the idea of living in a state in which the only thing we experience in this life is pain and suffering and failure and hurt and heartache. Indeed, the world has sometimes given Christianity this label. That is, to become a Christian means you will have to give up all fun. That's the way they say it. That's the way they think. The notions of the Puritans clothed in black draping and women's head bonnets comes to mind. An image as faulty then as the assumptions made of present day believers striving to live holy lives. By no fun, of course, the world rightly, I say they rightly conclude the view of Moses' decision when he came of age as an adult. Let me read it for you. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Hebrews 11, verse 24 and 25. It is thought by the unbelieving world that indulging in sin is the only avenue for having fun. And so when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is assumed that that day is when all fun in life ceases and gloom and doom sets in. Peter had something to say about that too. He writes, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, they think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation or self-indulgence or indecency, and they heap abuse on you. First Peter 3, or for chapter 4 rather, verse 3, verse 4. When I was... Um, growing up and became part of the neighborhood teens. Now, not necessarily a gang, but, you know, the kids that hung around together in the neighborhood. Invariably, invariably some brainiac would come up with the idea, the bright idea, of vandalizing some neighbor's property. Let's go have a little fun. It might be um, a vacant house, a garage, a parked car, whatever. Let's go throw stones through the windows of the old Palmer house on 4th Street. And if anyone declined to go and to be a part of this sin, that person would receive the quick and negative label, Killjoy! Remember that, growing up, folks? You're a killjoy. And then everyone in favor of the vandalism would do his best to get the killjoy to change his mind. 
And if that did not happen, then you were blackballed for refusing to go and be part of the fun. You know, things have not changed from my early days or from Peter's day. For today's concepts of fun include the illicit things, vandalism, fornication, getting drunk, getting high on drugs, late night carousing, just itching for some avenue of sin to present itself. This has always been a part of the sinful world. And yes, yes, the world is correct to assume, to expect, that the followers of Jesus Christ exemplify Paul's analysis when he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Knowing the truth of what the apostle also wrote to the church of Rome, when he wrote, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, verse 21 through 23. And so, yes, yes, we admit that as believers in Jesus, we no longer intentionally crave after sinful indulgence. But instead, we seek to live holy lives that are pleasing to the Lord. But that said, we renounce any idea that becoming a Christian is a drag or defeatist or the killing of all joy. We simply get our joy from other sources. Sources that feed the appetites of a renewed heart and a renewed nature. Paul writing in Romans 8 verse 5 says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And what is the mindset of these two natures? Well, writing in Galatians 5 and verse 17, Paul writes, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And Spirit is capitalized in all these texts, so it's Holy Spirit that he's talking about. The sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5 verse 17. And if you read further on in the context, it shows how these two opposing natures pan out. Let me read it for you. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. What are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, everything in that list is lawless or an affrontery to God. But that's what the sinful nature craves. That's what it goes after. Galatians 5, verse 19 through 21. Now, by way of contrast, the text goes on to say, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. So he's saying, none of these things are lawless. There's no law against any of those. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 23, 22 and following. Now when you read something like that, it's obvious that no two more obvious polar opposites could be found. But you did, did you notice that in the listing of the life in the Spirit, Paul's second trait was joy. Love is supreme, 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, none of these other things fall into place. But love, then joy. Joy. But the joy spoken of is not the joy, it is not the pleasure of sin, but the joy of obeying God and receiving His approval, His grace. And most importantly, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 verse 2. Simply put, you live like the devil and you're going to perish like the devil in eternal torment. You live your life catering to the desires of the sinful nature. You're going to go where that sinful nature takes you, where God has said it will take you. But if you live like Jesus, then you're going to become his brother. You're going to become his fellow heir of all God's blessings. We read in the scripture now, if we are children, then we are heirs and heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8 verse 17. And the sharing in his suffering has to do with all the persecution, bad-mouthing, insults and all of that that comes along from the world, you're a killjoy. You're a killjoy. You don't know how to have fun. And so you get a thumbs down from the world. So we repudiate then the idea that becoming a disciple of Jesus means the end of all joy or all fun but rather it is the beginning of a new and lasting joy that will carry us all the way from earth to heaven. Have you never experienced a change in your tastes or appetites or thinking? Paul teaches that change, transition, is part of growing up talks about himself and here's what he says when I was a child I talked like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child when I became a man 
I put childish ways behind me. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Some of today's teen hoodlums are tomorrow's hardcore criminals. They never outgrew their rebellious and lawless nature. They just became more entrenched in evil and how to indulge themselves in it. And some of them obtained their teaching degrees and they now teach their liberal, godless philosophy to our college kids all across our country. They never grew up. They're hippies still in heart and in rebels to stated authority and righteous morality. They're enemies of God and they're enemies of the gospel and they're now teaching in our secular universities. All you have to do is check out where their backgrounds are. Some of them are communists. Some of them are anarchists. Many of them are socialists. Where did they come from? We birthed them right out of the 60s. That's where they came from. But they never grew up. Their tastes never changed. Their philosophy never changed. Their thinking never changed. They were rebels then. They're rebels now. Only now they're reproducing. So that brings us then to our subject this morning, deep-seated, deep-seated joy. You'll notice firstly in your bulletin outline that this is more than happiness. Deep-seated joy is more than happiness. The pursuit of the world is happiness. The question they ask one another is, are you happy? Are you happy? Their confession concerning their life's pursuit is, all I want out of life is to be happy. I never hear anyone confess, I'm looking for joy. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I never had. The etymology of the word happy is from Middle English. Listen to the definition. To be happy is to be favored by luck or fortune. What? It's just kind of out there. Happiness might come your way or not come your way depending on how lucky you are. Another definition, prosperity, a state of well-being and contentment. Now we learn from all this that being happy is based on the circumstances in life which come our way, mostly not of our own doing, but simply things that just happen. You walk into work on Monday morning and the boss opens up his mail and he discovers that his company has just won a $2.5 million contract with an aerospace uh, company in South Texas. And immediately he's happy, especially because his company was on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. Two days later on Wednesday, after doing some analysis, the boss figures out that everyone in his workforce will be able to receive a 20% increase in salary. Now all the employees are happy. The boss is happy on Monday. The employees are happy on Wednesday when they find out this 
Good news. Now, I'm not knocking this. Good news can make us happy. Favorable circumstances should produce happiness. But consider another scenario. You walk into work on Monday morning and the boss opens his mail and he discovers not only did his company not receive the aerospace contract, but the bank, which has been extending him credit to help meet payroll, informs him that they can no longer extend credit because he does not have enough assets to cover the loan. Not only is the boss demoralized, but by Wednesday the workforce is notified that there will be a 50% cut in employees because there's not enough work for everyone to keep working. What now will be the state of mind with these circumstances? I can assure you that it will not be happiness, but very likely despondency, worry, uncertainty, fear, and a host of unanswerable questions. What's going to happen to my family? How will I make the mortgage payment? How will I feed and clothe the kids? Happiness, brethren, is based on circumstances, favorable circumstances, things that make people smile, things that are pleasant, things that are self-satisfying, things that allow you to sleep at night and wake up refreshed and ready to meet the challenge of the new day. Now, if you are an evil person, what makes you happy might be the fact that you embezzled $50,000 from the company by fudging the books and you got away with it. Or happiness might be as simple as a new dress for your birthday and dinner out to your favorite restaurant. Right, ladies? Some of you are shaking your heads. Some are saying, I do. when's the last time he got you a new dress? Yeah, I know, I got it. But what all of these definitions have in common is that happiness is contingent upon your circumstances, either good or bad, and how you relate to them. You can talk to a backwoods mountain man who lives alone in the hills of Montana subsisting on moose meat for food and beaver pelts for clothing and he will tell you that he's very happy with his life. Wouldn't change a thing. Likes living in the outdoors. Loves being alone. He's happy with his own thoughts. Gets to see people twice a year. Or you could talk with a debutante who has a career in modeling, meet, making six figures a year, living in a penthouse in New York City, and yet she may be miserable and lonely and frustrated in constant agony of soul because she has concluded that money, which she's got lots of, isn't enough to make her happy. In light of all this, the Bible does describe happiness as it comes to God's people, but it is always within the confines of what is occurring in a person's life. Let me give you an example from biblical history. 
When Leah saw that she had stopped, I'm reading scripture. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! See how she's describing it? What good fortune! So she named him Gad, G-A-D, which means crowds or groups. Reading on, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Now you see how fast the scripture can move here. We're talking nine months here, nine months, and it's just really clicking them off, giving us the history. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, which means, you guessed it, happy. Genesis 30, verses 9 through 13. You see, circumstances making her happy. But you know, Leah wasn't always happy. She wasn't. She was the first to be married to Jacob, but the last to be loved by Jacob. Let me read it for you. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben means behold a son. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Simeon means heard, referring to the fact that God heard her prayer. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And Levi means joined to, joined to, referring to the hope that Jacob would finally love her as he did Rachel. She had one more son named Judah, which means praised. Judah became the head of the line through whom the Christ would come. What does the scripture say? The Bible says God settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113, verse 9. That's what he was doing for Leah because he saw she was not loved. By Jacob. Solomon speaks of the worker. You're, we're all workers, right? And here's what he says. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possession and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. He even commands us, when times are good, be happy. He goes on, but when times are bad, consider 
God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. Now, by stating that God is in both the good times and the bad times, Solomon is pointing us to something deeper and more lasting than happiness. Things are good? Be happy. Things are bad? Well, okay. But don't forget, God is the author of both. Oh, God is the author. God is in both? He's in the bad times? What is this something that's deeper? Something which gone is to be looked to for solace. Well, that something to which he alludes is the joy of knowing the one in whose hands is our present circumstances, be they happy or unpleasant, and the certainty of our future, which no man knows but God knows. Now, that's a good, this is a good place to define what joy is. Happiness, happenstance, circumstance. That's what happiness is. What's joy? The Greek term means an inner calm or delight, and I like the secondary statement here, contemplative gladness of heart. Oh, whoa, contemplative. After you have thought through something, you take an inner delight and gladness in it. External things can be used by God to bring joy into your life, but the joy itself is an internal reality that is not intrinsically tied to the external circumstance. The external circumstance we're going to see in a few moments might be horrific, and yet a person can still have joy because joy isn't based on the external circumstances. And that's the next point in your outline, that joy is not in the temporal. It's not in the temporal. Happiness is in the temporal, in the here and now, but joy is not. And so we've learned thus far that happiness is attached to happenstance, those circumstances which come our way in life. The world thinks these things come our way by chance or fortune, whereas we believe that God is the author of all the events that come our way, be they good or bad. Circumstances do not rule over God, but He rules over them and governs the outcomes. And because happiness is attached to external things, what comes our way at the hand of God can make us either happy or sad. Our behavior in such cases is reactionary. It is emotional and it's automatic. We don't have to think about them. Our value system, which, by the way, is learned, governs our reaction. So, if good things, and by this I mean things we consider to be good, if good things come our way, we respond by being happy. The birth of a new and healthy baby. Promotion at work. A rich uncle who died and left you the keys to his ranch in Montana. I'm ready to go. 
if bad things come our way, we respond by being sad or discouraged or angry or frustrated. And you can see what your value has a lot to do with all of this. We noted earlier about the mountain man. He's happy with the kill of his hunt and the makeshift hut in the hills, whereas a city slicker would hate such circumstances. In contrast to all of this, joy runs deeper. Joy is contemplative. It is the result of thinking and piecing things together. Joy is not emotional, though it can result in a great deal of jubilation and expression of gladness. It is not automatic, but as indicated, the result of knowing some things. It has a cerebral element more than an emotional element. And because of this, joy is not reactionary. It is not based upon circumstances, but upon an inner peace and reality that is deeply rooted in God's grace. That's where the joy comes from. Recently, our family was involved in the funeral of a loved one who knew the Lord as Savior. This person was young by adult standards and was called home by God in what people would call the prime of life. The funeral was conducted with gospel music played on instruments, devotional prayers made to God, testimonies to a life that was lived by faith before God, and most of all, most of all, the gospel message of a Savior who had died to save a sinner and had now come to call his believing child home. There was weeping, but no wailing. Tears of sorrow, but no outbursts of anguish. Soul-satisfying words of comfort, but no blaming of God. Peace within, but no argument against God's providence. The faces of those present were contemplative and hopeful as they realized that what is often a day of wailing and uncontrollable sorrow for the unbelieving, for them was an occasion of joy. Joy. The whole funeral was the living out of the Bible's exhortation. Brothers, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. Don't grieve like that. What a demonstration of the difference between happiness and joy. As to the circumstances confronting the family, there was sadness. There was sorrow. That's what the circumstances were. But as to the contemplative and thought-out reality, there was inner joy that produced smiling faces. Yes, and accolades of praise to God for His grace. How can this be? It's because joy is not intrinsically connected with the temporal circumstances that people experience. This accounts for some of the seeming paradoxical teaching that we find in Scripture. I say seemingly paradoxical. 
makes perfectly sense to the believing heart. For example, when the apostles defied the charge of the Jewish council to stop preaching in Jesus' name, they were arrested and they were flogged, that is, they were whipped unmercifully, and then they were released. And we read, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Acts 5, verse 41. Just think about this. The temporal circumstances were what they experienced from the flogging and the insults of the Sanhedrin. And so, they had bleeding backs and painful joints and torn flesh. That's the circumstances. But within, there was rejoicing. Joy was the result of contemplation, thinking, you know, we just, we just took a shellacking because of our stand for Christ. How wonderful! We didn't cave in to the evil of men. God's grace was with us. We're not dead, just beat up a little bit. And so they rejoiced. Oh, and incidentally, they went right back to the temple where they were told not to go, and the next day... They were found there preaching again in Jesus' name. That's the difference, brethren. The difference between happiness and joy. As to the circumstances, they should have felt pretty low, pretty miserable. But they were filled with inner joy. Listen to Paul's authentication of the persecution that he suffered at the hands of evil men. He writes, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in greater endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad reports and good reports, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful, now notice, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Second Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. You read through this list, and I'm telling you, there is enough temporal pain and reversal here to crush any man and send him into deep depression and complaint against God. But Paul is full of joy. Not because what happened to him was fun to go through. Not because he was a sadist who loved pain. But because he could see God in the trials. And he understood Jesus' words. Blessed are you when people insult you. 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Joy, brethren, transcends temporal circumstances. And so you have these seeming paradoxical statements of people suffering all kinds of adverse circumstances in the scripture. And yet, they speak of joy, rejoicing, and all of those things through those bad, rotten things that were done to them. That brings us then to joy's root and joy's branches. What's the root of joy? Well, the kind of joy we've been talking about. Chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 4 and following says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with what? The joy given by the Holy Spirit. There you have it. This kind of joy that we're talking about is not the jollies the world comes up with. It's the real deep-seated joy that can look through severe suffering, he says, you guys went through. But you had joy given by the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed after the successful preaching tour of his disciples and here it is. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Luke 10, verse 21. Jesus' joy was through the Spirit. So it should not surprise us to hear Paul exhort the believers at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. That's what circumstances do. See? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God. See, that's an outgrowth of joy. Peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. You want to be calm of heart? You want to have peace in your heart? Rejoice in the Lord. The root of the Christian's inner joy is the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, we already noted this joy as one of the fruits of the Spirit that He brings into our lives. Galatians 5, verse 22. Now, this joy is not giddiness. It is not ribald or brazen. It's not human. It is not of the world's philosophy. It's the gift of God, and that is why it seems so surreal to many observers, especially unbelievers. How, for example, do we explain Hebrews 12, verse 2, speaking about Jesus? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, 
For the joy set before him has endured the cross. Scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did I read that right? A willing Savior contemplating dying in agony on a cross has joy in his heart. And people read that and that is an enigma to the observing world. trying to balance that out because they're looking at the circumstance cross nails naked shame beating crown of thorns spear in the side how could he be happy with that he wasn't happy with that he's full of joy with that this joy is understood in his prayer also written in Hebrews, this time Hebrews 10. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10 verse 9. The root of Christian joy is the spirit of the living Christ, where joy resides in doing God's will. And so Jesus coming and to offer his body a sacrifice for sinners gave him inner joy. Why? Because that was the Father's will for him. Secondly, what about the branches? Look at the last couple of verses there of our text. Verse 19 and 20. Paul says, for what is our hope? What's, what's our joy? Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And this is a repeated theme in scripture. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, Philippians 4, verse 1. Or again, Philippians 1, verse 26. Through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul says, I know that me being with you, that'll bring joy to you. And then on the other side of the coin is given in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Because of you. The Apostle John concurs, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. 2 John verse 12. Jesus taught us that He's the vine and we're the branches. John 15. That vitality that we all obtain from Christ, the strength and ability to produce fruit pleasing to God, is a corporate reality. 
Now we see this spilling over with the subject of joy. We are to enjoy, we are to rejoice in each other's attachment to Christ and in each other's service to Christ. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, and so on. So if there is something that keeps you from fellowshipping with another group of believers, you are allowing Satan to use bitterness or anger or some other gripe to ruin your joy. Yes, we abstain from involvement with people whose doctrine is heretical, but we must not withdraw from God's people who may have offended us over some sin or what we perceive to have been sin. I would say to you, forgive and forget. Life is short. Eternity is forever. Do you really want to face God with your grudge against a fellow believer? It's not just what the grudge is doing to you now in terms of destroying joy in the Spirit. The branches are all of us together. No group of believers was more hostile, more critical, more insulting to the Apostle Paul than the church of Corinth. Think about this. I believe they hurt him deeply. They questioned his apostleship. They imbibed false teaching from those who they considered to be super apostles. You know, uh, there's Paul, but then we got, wow, we got these super apostles. Paul can't hold a candle to them. And then they accuse the Apostle Paul of being a money grubber. There's chapters written about this in Corinthians. He has to explain that he didn't take any money from them. That he preached the gospel to them free of charge. Oh, something they might have forgot there. But listen to his appeal. They hurt him. They insulted him. They questioned his apostleship, and they maligned his motives. Listen to his appeal. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. And I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Whatever. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4. You think you've got problems with the brethren? Paul experienced all these negative things towards him. And he says, yet my joy knows no bounds. I'm so pleased that you're, you came to know Christ. That's the important thing. Go ahead and badmouth me all you want. Call me all kinds of names. Malign my motives. But you're part of the family of God. 
And he says, you have many instructors in the Lord, but you only have one father in the Lord, and that was me. I'm the one that walked into wicked Corinth that day with the good news of the gospel. I preached it. The Spirit of God fell upon the words. He quickened your hearts and made you alive. What joy. What joy. Brethren, we need to get a perspective on joy and on life that doesn't forget the corporate reality of the branches. Yeah, we have the root who is Christ, the Spirit of Christ. But we're to have joy in the Lord because of one another. And if you cut yourself off in bitterness, you're destroying your own joy. So here it is. Christ is the root of all godly joy. And you, along with and in union with other believers of like faith, are the branches. I'm wondering if the world, when they look at Thornville Church, do they see a church full of joy? God's joy. What's growing on the end of the branches? I hope it's good fruit, not bitter. Sweet fruit. Forgive one another. Repent of your own selfishness. Come to Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for deep-seated joy. That it is not locked into circumstances. That is to say, we can have joy in the Spirit when the circumstances are rotten. When what we're going through, when what we are experiencing is sorrowful, sad, despondent, hurtful. And yet we can have inner joy. Knowing that it is our God that brings all the circumstances into our lives. Even the bad things, and the bad things are to teach us and to warn us and to change us and to revitalize us and to get our focus back where it needs to be, chastening. Even the bad things, do all those, they, they do all those things for us that we might get back to deep-seated joy in Christ and in one another. Now, Lord, help us with this series. This is just the opening remarks but how we need to be joyful souls. If there are some here this morning that don't know Christ, there is a bitterness and a frustration in soul that can be solved only in the person of Christ and His forgiveness and cleansing. May they too be able to cast their sins upon you, their heartaches, their burdens, their frustrations, their fears, their unbelief, Whatever it is that's keeping them from you today, O oh Lord, bring them into the joy of knowing Christ. For your glory we ask that, and for their good we ask that. Amen.